I don't know if you are like me, but when I am in the car, especially when I'm operating the vehicle, my goal is to not be in the car any longer than I need to be in the car. Uh, my job is to operate the vehicle in a safe and mostly legal way in order to get somewhere. And if you're like me, I really value when my normal route is, is almost like the water's part and I'm the only car on the road. You ever have this feeling where you're driving and everything in your route is just falling into place? There's nobody at your least favorite four-way stop. You're the only one there. All the stoplights sort of just in unison change to green so you can go. Have you ever had this happen? For me, they're like one in a hundred trips, but you just realize that for some reason, everything feels like it's just, the Lord is smiling down. Lord, what did I do right today to deserve this? Uh, And and I'll just uh, go through those lights and I'll say, I praise the Lord uh, for what you have done and the way that you've allowed me to do this. Well, in, in some ways, I hope that feeling, or, or maybe you have other things that you just like to go your way sometimes, and you, you, you marvel sometimes when they fall into place. It, it reminds me of the way this story is. This story is no accident. We're going to find that out this morning. There are a number of things that seem like they are the strangest details, but it all comes into place And it is for the glory of God as Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. The title today, A Glimpse of Guarded Praise. Uh, The people in this city were not necessarily guarded. I'll be honest about that. But uh, we're good Bible students and and we know the whole scope. And so uh, by the end, I hope you will understand better what I mean by a guarded praise. It is a a praise uh, that Jesus comes in, and then it leads to the rest of the week. And so uh, we will be dealing with some of that tension by the time that we are done today. But I want you to see how and why God brought this event in the way that Jesus is praised. And so certainly there was some preparation involved. There really, really was. I can never, ever read this story without just scratching my head. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied, a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. (laughs) And he sent two disciples. He didn't pick four. For some reason, he just picked two. And it sounds like he sends them to go steal some stuff to use. Hey, we got to get somewhere. Why don't you go get me a ride? You know, he's like, are they car thieves, or, or what are they doing? Uh, you, you wonder. Uh, and then he says in verse 3, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So in their culture, people who were in positions of authority were able to come and use your stuff. Say, so, hey, so-and-so needs this. And what's really interesting here is Jesus didn't say, uh, Your Lord or your personal authority, or somebody in government, he says, the Lord needs them. And so even in these simple instructions, he is putting himself uh, front and center as a, posi- as a person of authority who is worthy of obedience and respect. And so, so we, see, we see these, uh, these details, 
And, and we see that, that Jesus knows. Uh, the, the fancy theological word for this is omniscience, which means that uh, God knows everything and is all-knowing. And so Jesus, in setting up these details to, to help bring this about, uh, didn't just decide one day uh, that he needed a donkey and a colt in order to do this. He knew uh, what was going on. He knew where they were going to be. He knew where they were going to find them. He knew the disposition of the owners. And he sends his disciples uh, in this. He is bringing this about. God is working all throughout uh, the story of Jesus' life uh, to, to bring these events that we will celebrate today and throughout this week and into next Resurrection Sunday, uh, he brings it all about. And so a quick point of application uh, that we could ask ourselves is, are we really willing to trust God in the details? There's a lot of obedience that goes on that isn't flashy, that nobody sees. Is he really our authority when he says, I want you to do that? Yeah, well, I don't get any credit for that. Nobody's going to see that. Sometimes we may wonder that. No, we just need Jesus to be our authority. If he needs us, let's do it. Let's obey. Let's have that relationship with him. Are we really willing to trust him when we don't know how something's going to work out? But we know we should do it anyway. She asks that every year on Palm Sunday. We think about some of these details. Will we obey in those unseen places? We should ask these questions. Okay. Preparation, number one. Number two, prophecy. I read that something unique happened in, I believe it was this year's NCAA tournament. I mentioned last week about you know, people who might have filled out a bracket and last week we were talking about the sheep and the goats. And I said, now, uh, as of last Sunday, they were down to two teams. And it was only two teams that mattered. And in the passage we were doing last week, only the sheep and the goats mattered. Uh, you can read Matthew 25 if you want to go back to last week and, and do that. But I, I read what happened. Uh, people always like to go, well, I predicted that this was going to happen. All right? Now, what I'm going to challenge you to do is I'm going to challenge you to get in your mind the, the number of games that someone has consecutively picked that is uh, the all-time record for online uh, guessing of the NCAA tournament. 64 teams in the field. And I want you to guess how many consecutive games has someone predicted correctly. Uh, I believe it was this year the record was set, but uh, you have a number in your mind. Anybody know the number? I heard 50. Did somebody say 50? It was 48 which means they got the entire first weekend correct. Got the entire Sweet 16 100% perfect. That's pretty good. But that's the record. <laughs> that's only the first weekend. That doesn't even get you to the final eight or the final four or the champion. And they interviewed the guy who did it, and he didn't even know he did it. <laughs> he filled out like five brackets. He's like, oh, yeah, I guess one of them's perfect. I thought that was hilarious. And so we, we get all fascinated. We would, oh yeah, somebody predicted. I can't believe they got 48 games in a row. They're so lucky. So if you have missed this scripture today, um, let me encourage you. Uh, we're going to see it one more time. Here is Zechariah 9 and verse 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Zechariah, we believe, was inspired by God to write this passage hundreds of years before anybody knew who Jesus ever was or was ever going to be. We believe that he wrote this passage down, that there would be a king on a colt full of a donkey. And there would be shouting and rejoicing. This reminded me, if you want to do a little bit more studying... Uh, I would encourage you to write down Daniel chapter 9, and I would encourage you to to go and and do some studying about Daniel chapter 9. I'll summarize what Daniel chapter 9 says quickly. In Daniel chapter 9, we are told by, if you do the math uh, and, and understand what's going on there, there would be 483 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem, this is after the people were exiled, until the coming of the Messiah. And so if you draw an arc from when Babylonian history tells us the command was given to rebuild Jerusalem, and you draw an arc to the coming of the Messiah, you land on Palm Sunday. You land on that Sunday in the year when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Do we think that God just got all the games right by chance? We think he just got lucky and had a perfect bracket that day in Daniel chapter 9 and said, boy, I'm glad that I got that right. Whew! They must have have thought I was an idiot if I didn't get this one right. No. We should be encouraged when we see prophecy fulfilled in God's word. There are so many things that happen in the last week of Jesus' life that fulfill prophecy. These little snippets. There's no explanation index guide where the prophet said, okay, now here's what I'm going to tell you, and this is going to be in Matthew 21. They didn't have that kind of a guide. They didn't write those sorts of things down. Zechariah didn't know who Matthew was going to be or the gospel writers. He didn't know who Jesus was going to be. He wrote down what God told him to write down, and he was faithful to that. And in that way, the prophets told of the coming king. They told of the Messiah. And so many things from this last week of Jesus' life are, are, are predicted, just like Zechariah, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, before this last week unfolds. And and prophecies throughout Jesus' life are fulfilled. So, the donkey, the colt, the crowd, the timing, I'm going to talk about the timing in a minute, but think about that. Why now? Why this time? Well, this is the fulfillment. This is what God had in mind. And prophecy is fulfilled. With Jesus, there's no luck involved. We have a God who knows all, who is outside of time, and is able to orchestrate this scene of praise in, in ways that 
blow our minds. And they, we, we look at that and we say, yes, there really is. There really is a God who knows. There really is a God who's created all of this and is powerful and knowledgeable over all of it. Yes, there is. He's not like us. He's better than we are. He's worthy of our worship. He's perfect and he's holy and he knows and he's able to construct these events in this way. Follow me into the third pra, the preparation and prophecy and praise. I expect you to remember that by next Sunday. That's really clever. There's three words there with PR in the beginning. Okay? I tried hard for that. <laughs> now we're at praise. This is the point of the passage, isn't it? That Jesus is praised. The preparation happened, the prophecy is fulfilled, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he is praised. But we must guard how we approach the praise. Why is this happening in Jerusalem. Why the city? Why is this going on? I want to show you this in Matthew 16 and 21. Here's what Jesus taught. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go where? To Jerusalem. And Suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus had taught his disciples and had predicted that this would all take place in Jerusalem. That was his location. That was his mission. That was where this was all going to happen. We see it in Luke 9 and 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city, the place. Why would God have this take place in Jerusalem? Why the scene of praise? Why the crowd adoring the Son of God as he comes into Jerusalem? If the story stopped here, we would say this is the crowning moment. This is the big result of the crescendo of the story. But it's not the end of the story. We know the crucifixion happens later in the week. We know that. So what is going to stir up the anger of all the spiritual leaders that already hated Jesus... And we're already opposing him as he was ministering in different ways and teaching and doing miracles. And they questioned him and they were a thorn to him. And they were always a distraction and detracting and trying to get at him. What would stir up their anger enough to kill him more than the whole city coming together in praise as he rides in? Now, do we understand the timing? If we know the crucifixion and the resurrection are supposed to happen because Jesus taught they would and were predicted and we see glimpses of them in Old Testament prophecy and we know that that was what was going to happen, what would stir up their anger and their jealousy of Jesus, their envy of him, enough to kill him than the whole city praising him? 
This is our God. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is the way he works. He lays these events out so that Jesus is praised in this mighty way in order that it would further fuel the opposition so God's plan would come about. This is earlier in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is the first part of verse 26 here. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is challenging language. We've studied this over a couple of Sunday nights recently uh, here in Matthew 16. This is right after Peter got the question right, who, is, who do people say Jesus is? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's right. And then he begins to teach, I'm going to suffer. And the way of following Jesus is hard. And so he teaches that. And he wants them to be aware of that. And so this ultimately is the good news. The earthly... Praise wasn't the end of the story. The crucifixion was. This is to show us and to speak to us and to challenge us in our human hearts, where are we drawn? Do we ever get past the crowd of Palm Sunday? Here's our human nature, is we want to be on the winning team, don't we? We want to be right about things. It's fun to join with the winning thing and to be a part of the the group that's empowered. In some senses, this is human nature. It's why bullies bully, because they're in power and people don't want to get run over by the bullies, so sometimes they just lay down and join them. They don't want to do that because it's easier to be with the the majority. It's easier to be with the crowd. So we find some ideology or we find some leader that we like and we buy into the things that we say. Why? Because they're popular and a lot of people think they're right. And that makes us feel good. We can feel like we're a part of the in crowd. I'm not just talking about politics. This happens within Christianity. You may have a favorite teacher or an evangelist or a person from history and sometimes uh, we we get all wrapped up in this person and what they're doing and, and we're not prepared to realize that they're a human being with real struggles because we've put them up on some pedestal. So what I want to do is to challenge you. I'm not trying to be harsh. I want to make a connection here. Let me challenge you to think that if you have some favorite pastor or favorite leader uh, within Christianity that you, you follow, how unjust and how unfair would it be if the government arrested that person, unfairly tried them and convicted them and sentenced them to death? How unfair would that be? We would, we would, we would say this is outrageous and there would be an outcry because you can't do that. Well, let's get some good perspective. Really, this happens in other parts of the world where where there aren't media to show us that it happens. There are pastors and leaders whose names we'll never know till we get to heaven who are killed by governmental authorities and by by vicious mobs or the government passively allows this. It happens regularly. Do a Google search on persecuted church instead of the latest entertaining game and you'll educate yourself on the way this happens. So it's not wrong to have a famous teacher. Be inspired by Billy Graham. 
Be inspired by the, the, the guys or the ladies that are out there that are really encouraging you. But realize that the goal isn't to be a part of the in crowd. What if persecution comes that person's way? Culturally, in Christianity, we've been a part of the crowd for a long time in the United States of America. The majority of my life, and the older you are, the, the, the more majority of, of your lives. And the way things are unfolding in our country, that may not last very long. In fact, that ship has probably already sailed, where we're on the winning team culturally. It's more fashionable now to come down on Christianity, people who get their morals and the way they live their lives from the scriptures and trust in Jesus who died for them. It's more, more popular at times to, to make fun of this belief than it is to say, yeah, that's a culturally accepted thing. Pay attention. I'm speaking today to our human nature. Because here's the thing. If we spend our whole life in crowd Christianity, then we'll never have any idea what the way of the cross is all about. If our Christianity is the, the next conference and the next great sermon series from our, our preacher and the next great concert and the next great feel-good thing, we'll never be prepared for the hard place to obey. We'll never be prepared when someone is in our face saying, I really hate you. Do you believe that garbage, do you? If we're crowd Christianity, we'll just say, uh -huh. and we won't be ready to take the stand. Jesus, he knew the crowd would turn. He was ready for it. He knew it was the plan. God had orchestrated these events in a way in preparing and in fulfilling prophecy that should encourage us. Oh, the praise. It's hard for me to fight back tears down here singing the praise and imagining what it was like when those cloaks hit the ground in front of Jesus the palm branches, the signs of victory waving. They wanted their king. That's Hosanna. One of these years on Palm Sunday, I'm going to just drill into Hosanna. <laughs> They're calling out, save us. They wanted the political military king to bring the army and get rid of the, the Romans and restore Jerusalem and the Jews to all of the glory. And it wasn't going to happen. Jesus knew what saving really was. So as we move toward closing today, I hope that you know what saving really is. I hope you know that Jesus died for you, that you can't get to heaven and be saved by just saying I'm with the right crowd and looking like I'm giving praise. I can't do that. I have to follow Jesus through that praise and to the cross and say that is where he suffered and bled and died in my place. I hope that God would prepare our souls throughout this week. I hope you really consider coming to worship Thursday or Friday night. I really do. There's power in being brought back to that truth of really what it is for us to be saved. Looking forward to it. Things not going the way you think they should. God taking too long to provide something for you. Family life difficult. Got some relationships that are a bit messy. Nothing's going right. An illness maybe you can't shake. People cut you off. In their life, or they treat you different because you became a Christian, now you're on the right track. Guarded praise. A praise of a Savior who's worth it. He healed. 
and taught and did miracles and glorified God in what he did. We praise, but we guard in the sense that all of our praise isn't feel good. We praise the Savior who died. We praise the Savior who suffered. The Bible has a blueprint for us when the hard times come. Will we be people who are ready to praise him even when it doesn't feel good? That's the tension of Palm Sunday. The preparation, the prophecy, the praise. It's so we could follow and we could obey and we could glorify God who if he brought his son into the hour of trial, may bring us as well. He prepared Jesus, and Jesus obeyed perfectly. May we look at that example and consider the week ahead.